Hi, everyone. You're listening to the podcast by and for Angel Nears, a Silicon Valley community of startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is a three-time entrepreneur and most recently the founding CEO of MobileIron, which experienced explosive growth during a five-year stretch from 2009 to 2013 when it was named the fastest growing technology company in the world and ranked number one in Deloitte's Fast 500 Index. In addition, he's co-authored two books on the topic of building enterprise startups called Survival to Thrival, books one and two. Bob Tinker, welcome to the show. Thank you, all. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, thrilled to have you. First, I got to say, great job on the book titles. <laughs> Thank you. Before we get started on the books, I just wanted to ask a little bit about what were you doing at Mobile Iron that sort of inspired you to later write write a book? Yeah, so you know, my background is I'm a multi-time entrepreneur, sort of three times. The first one failed. The second one did pretty well. The third one was Mobile Iron, which we ended up taking public. But, you know, like many things, sort of inspiration is born from frustration. And I was a first-time CEO. And, you know, it's hard to be a first-time CEO. And there was a number of things that I was frustrated about that I wish I had known better. And uh, the inspiration for the two books was really sort of the frustrations I felt having been a first-time CEO. The catalyst for it was... Funnily enough, uh, a talk I ended up doing at Stanford, which was if I could write myself a letter that would be sitting on my desk eight years ago as a first-time CEO, what would I tell myself? Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Well, that's that's what ended up turning into the two books. But uh, the things I would tell myself as a first-time CEO is stuff breaks, be ready. Mm-hmm. If you actually succeed and make progress, like the things that used to work will suddenly not work. The second one is that there's a difference between building a product and building a business. And that one really is what drove book one, which was survival to thrival, which coined the the concept of go-to-market fit. I think in Silicon Valley, we're fundamentally a product shop. We're really, really, really good at helping entrepreneurs build products. But I think one of the things we don't do as well is how to help entrepreneurs build go-to-markets on the back of their products. And that's the difference between building a product and building a business. And uh, looking back on that, I think, you know, we were able to make that happen at Mobile Iron, but, you know, it wasn't obvious to me that that was the case as a first-time CEO. There's a couple other things, you know, building culture, doing things that are uncool. Yeah, there's a number of other things that I wish I could tell myself. Sure, yeah. So thinking of the listener who's not maybe familiar with Mobile Iron, like what, what was the product there? We built a mobile security product. If you think back to mobile, I'm started in 2008. So I know this is probably amusing for the listeners here, but in 2008, the mobile world consisted of Nokia smartphones, which were Symbian, BlackBerry, which was barely a smartphone, and Windows Phone. iPhone was brand new and Android didn't exist yet. And, you know, the world was pretty much running on BlackBerry for mobile email, and yet then iPhone showed up, then Android showed up, and users wanted to choose their own device. They wanted to be able to get email, they wanted to be able to get apps, they wanted to bring their own device to work. And that triggered a whole new avalanche of security and management challenges. So MobileIron built a security and management platform to solve that problem for mobile. And uh, 
you know, if you think back to the wave of smartphones that crashed into the enterprise over the next five years, that turned out to be a pretty good idea. Okay, so it sounds like you got a wealth of experience working at Mobile Iron. What inspired you to write a book? You know, one of the things when you're a first time CEO is you need help. And there were a lot of people who helped me on my journey that, you know, I was able to call and ask questions. Like if I was struggling with something, I could get their advice. Or frankly, they would just, you know, sort of give me that hard feedback or help me understand what's next. And a big part of what enabled me to be able to help lead a company from three people to a thousand was all those people that helped me along the way. And that was really sort of the inspiration to be able to write the two books was to be able to give back and sort of share some of the things that I wish I had known as a first time CEO. And uh, it's sort of the great karmic cycle of Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial community is entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs. So as far as I understand, your sort of secret sauce or message throughout the books is finding this go-to-market fit. Can you tell me, well, first, if I'm right, and then tell me a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. So book one, Survival to Thrival, the company journey, is really about helping entrepreneurs sort of understand what's coming next. And you know, in the very beginning, you're just trying to not die. Then you try and find product market fit. And if you look at most of the literature and content out there in the entrepreneurial community, it's about that part of building a business, which is how do you build a product and go win your first customers, which is a huge deal. Like if you can go win your first 10, 15, 20 customers and get product market fit, that's spectacular. But one of the challenges we saw at Mobile Iron, and you know, I see a lot in the startup community is that startups there's actually a missing link between hitting product market fit and winning your first 10 or 15 or 20 customers and unlocking growth. There are a ton of companies that get to product market fit, but never unlock growth. And it's sort of this, just go solve that sales thing is sort of what entrepreneurs get told. And I found that immensely unhelpful. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? And what we realized is that there's actually a missing link between product market fit and unlocking growth that ironically doesn't have a name, didn't have a construct to it. Yet, if you look at companies who had succeeded in doing it, there was a pattern to it. And so that was where we coined the term go-to-market fit as this missing link, finding product market fit in your first 10 or 15 customers, and how do you unlock repeatable, predictable sales? And I think that's probably what at least book known's gonna book one's gonna be most known for is the concept of go to market fit. What is it, how to find it, how to execute on it. And you know, if you look back at what really enabled Mobile Iron's growth to go from winning 10 customers a quarter to winning at some point 500 new enterprise customers a quarter, it was this recipe for go to market fit. Can you tell me specifically at Mobile Iron what that meant to find your go to market fit? At a very high level, it's really about finding predictable, repeatable sales. And sort of if you unpack that and say, well, how do you do that? And like, what did we do at Mobile Iron? And, you know, frankly, this isn't just a Mobile Iron thing. Like Box has done the same thing. Marketo did the same thing. Like if you actually look at a lot of the companies that were sort of our cohort that unlocked growth, there's a pattern to it. And the pattern really came down to three things. The first one is can you find an urgent wave, which is a wave of change or opportunities that has urgency to it that customers will be able to figure out why they're going to buy now and not a year from now. That was number one. Number two was defining 
a repeatable go-to-market playbook. And I totally underestimated sort of the importance of doing that. In my head as a product sort of led entrepreneur, I translated a go-to-market playbook as, hey, I need a good PowerPoint pitch. And I bet like a bunch of your listeners probably were like, oh, he means a PowerPoint pitch. And I don't mean a good PowerPoint pitch. It's actually what are the repeatable steps you take from the first time you find a customer all the way through to when you win them and make them successful. There's a whole journey there that you got to get really explicit about and build a repeatable playbook. And we can talk a little bit more about that. So that was part two. Mm -hmm. Part three is figuring out what your sales model is going to look like. You know, is it product-led selling? Is it marketing-led selling? Is it, frankly, more traditional up-the-middle enterprise sales-led selling? And when you tie together those three things, which is the urgent wave, the repeatable go-to-market playbook, and nailing down what your go-to-market model looks like, when you bring those three things together and solve for that, that's what unlocks sort of the repeatable growth. And just to walk through what that looked like for Mobile Iron. You know, the difference between go-to-market fit and not having go-to-market fit, you know, when we won our first 10 or 15 customers, we could raise our hand and say, hey, we we achieved product market fit, which is a huge accomplishment. Like I said, if you don't get that, you just don't succeed. But once we figured out go-to-market fit, we're able to really have this repeatable recipe to find and win customers over and over and over again. And this is back in Q4 2010. We, start, we went from winning 10 customers a quarter to 50 customers a quarter to 150 customers a quarter to for probably a two-year period, we were winning over 500 new enterprise customers a quarter, which is nuts, absolutely nuts. And that was what really enabled Mobile Iron to be that, you know, the number one in the Deloitte Fast 500 was we had combined those three things of an urgent wave, a repeatable playbook, and we had our sales model nailed, and we just turned the crank. And I'll tell you sort of a funny story. Sometimes I get asked the question, how do you find good market fit? But one of the other questions I get asked is, how do you know you found it? Is there a special metric you can look for? And, you know, there are metrics you can look for. You see pipeline grow, you see conversions increase. But I will tell you, when you find it, you know it. Mm. And what it feels like is momentum. All of a sudden, you just start to see the pipeline building. You start to feel the deals happening. And for me, there was at one point, my head of sales, a guy named John Donnelly at the time, came into my office and basically said, hey, Bob, you can take up my quota as high as you want if you will let me hire as many people as I can, because I cannot get to all the deals I see. May all the entrepreneurs out there have that same conversation with their head of sales someday. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of jealous entrepreneurs. Yeah, that was when I realized we figured it out. You know, there's sort of a a good analogy, which is maybe like surfing. I realize that's a little bit of a California-centric analogy. But if you think about surfing, you're out there paddling around in the water, and it's a lot of work, right? You're expending a lot of energy, and you you see another surfer off on a surfboard catch a wave and ride, and you're like, how'd that guy do that? Well, you know, there's a good analogy for surfing. You got to paddle out, you got to do some work, you got to find it, but then you got to look for that wave and the wave comes and you have to paddle to sort of catch it. And so, you know, there's an urgent wave as part one, getting your playbook right means you sort of catch the wave and you can turn the crank and capitalize on that wave. And all of a sudden you start to pick up momentum. 
And then having your go-to-market model nailed down is really making sure that you've got the unit economics associated with that, catching that wave, be able to turn into a good business. And the same way in surfing that you pick up momentum when you catch the wave just right, you've got the right board and you're paddling at the right speed. Sort of the same thing with go-to-market fit and being able to unlock growth. I'm not sure I totally understand the urgency component. Can you break that down a little bit more? Yeah, this is this is actually often as a startup, right? You've got a product idea. You've got founder-led selling. As a founder, you were able to convince 10 or 15 customers to give you money and use your product. And that's a huge deal. But you know, one of the biggest challenges as a startup is you know, when you go talk to a customer, like why are they going to buy now versus a year from now? And if there's not a clear answer to that question, leads are going to be slow, conversions are going to be slow, sales is going to be slow, it's going to be a grind. If you can find an urgent problem or an urgent pain that triggers the customer to shift from, I'm going to buy a year from now to, I'm going to buy in the next 90 days, that is a huge driver of growth. And I hear sometimes from entrepreneurs that, Hey, we need to, how do you create urgency? And I actually think that's the wrong question to ask because creating urgency where there is none is hard. I think the better question to ask is how do you find urgency? And, you know, this is one of those things that I learned the hard way, which is as a product led founder, when you go start a company, you're super passionate about what your product is and the problem it's solving. And you get out there and you intersect with reality. And you might win five customers or 10 customers, but you may not have found that urgent pain that sort of all of a sudden causes customers to say, I want to buy now. And there's a tendency as a founder, and I certainly felt this, to sort of be dogmatic about your founding idea. And what we found was that the urgent pain that actually unlocked growth for us was not exactly what we thought it was going to be. And so, you know, we ended up casting a slightly wider net and looking a little bit to the left and a little bit up and a little bit down to try and find what that urgent pain was. And we found something that was a little bit different than our initial idea, but turned out to have a lot more urgency. So specifically for us, rewind back to 2008, our initial product idea was around securing and managing Windows Phone and BlackBerry, because that was the major products that were out in the market at the time. Well, turns out there was this new thing called iPhone, and it was only in the consumer world. It wasn't being used at work. It was kind of considered a toy in the enterprise. Nobody was taking it seriously. And the unit volume in the enterprise was relatively low. But one of my early sort of Davy Crockett type explorer sales reps was out talking to customers, and he started to sense urgency around iPhone. And what it was was senior executives in large companies were going into their IT team and saying, I want to use this iPhone at work. And IT was like, no, we'll give you a BlackBerry. And the CEO was like, no, figure out how to let me use iPhone or you're fired. And as you can imagine, that created a level of urgency in the mind of the IT team. And if we hadn't, and it was sort of controversial for us internally because it felt a little bit like we were betraying our initial founding idea by doing a minor pivot to go focus on iPhone. In retrospect, it seemed really obvious, but at the time it felt kind of like founder heresy to be able to look a little bit to the left or look a little bit right or look a little bit down to try and find a problem 
that had more urgency to it. And I think that was sort of the core lesson for me is that, you know, it's true you want to focus on your founding idea and do that, but you don't want to be so dogmatic about it that you miss what might be a more urgent problem that may be just next door. And so, you know, the lesson for me was sort of cast a slightly wider net to find that pain that has urgency to it. Well, then the question becomes, all right, once you find that pain, how do you repeatedly capitalize on it? And that was sort of the next step for us in terms of finding go-to-market fit. Thanks for explaining that. I think I get it a lot better now where in your metaphor, the surfer is kind of like you as a company, even your, your surfboard, that's your product or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And you're out paddling, you're out paddling around in the ocean trying to catch a wave. And, you know, there's little waves and there's big waves. Right. And the iPhone was a big wave for you guys. Exactly. And it had urgency to it. Like it triggered, because put your, you know, one of the hardest things about being a startup is you walk into a company and say, hey, buy our product and put yourself in the position of like one of your first 10 customers, right? They're like, they're going to have to go to their boss and be like, hey, I want to write a check to this company called Mobile Iron. Like, oh, how big are they? Oh, they're 25 people. Oh, well, how many customers do they have? Oh, we're going to be one of the first five. And that takes a lot of courage for your customer to go to their boss and say, I want to go buy an unproven product from an unproven company. Like that's a big deal. And so you have to both have a better product that solves a real problem, but it has to be a problem with enough urgency that enables your customer to advocate to go take a risk on buying from a startup. Yeah. And I think how you said enough urgency there is really key because, you know, when you're selling like mobile security or security in general, it's like always kind of an urgent issue, but because it's always an urgent issue, it's almost not urgent. But honing in on like iPhone security, this is new, this could blow up. I think that's um, that's a obviously a strategy that worked for you guys. Yeah. And I think the other piece there is just you go start a company with an initial founding idea. And so the lesson for me was cast a slightly wider net because the thing that could trigger the urgency to help you unlock growth may not be exactly what you thought it was. So make sure you go listen to customers and watch what's going on. You know, how we found it was our first two sales reps who were out running around trying to find deals would just naturally ask customers, what are some of the other things bugging you right now? Like that's a really powerful question to just ask your early prospects. Hey, we're here to talk to you about X. But while you're talking to them, just ask them, hey, is there anything else going on sort of around this area that's really you're struggling with? And you'll be surprised what they tell you. Sometimes like that could be that magic clue that points you to something that may be just a little bit off your initial idea, but has way more urgency. Got it. So I think I get the urgency uh, portion of this, but there's two more parts. What should we talk about next? Yeah, let's talk about the figuring out your sales model and then maybe talk about the go-to-market playbook. And the go-to-market playbook on this one is interestingly what sounds the simplest but the hardest. So let's maybe finish on that one. Let's take as part two this, how do you figure out your sales model? All right. That's the question. Yeah. How do you figure out your sales model? So I found this horrendously confusing as a first-time CEO. It was like, okay. You have the venture capital investors saying, do product-led selling, have your product sell itself, you know, like a Twilio or Atlassian. And that way you don't have to have any salespeople. And look, that's great. And it's awesome if you can figure that out. But the reality is there are always certain go-to-market models that are kind of fads or sort of in vogue at any particular time. 
And as an entrepreneur, like there is no one right go-to-market model for everybody. There's only what's right for you and your product and your customer. So as you figure out what your go-to-market model is, there is no one right answer. There's just what's the right answer for you. And you can sort of picture this spectrum or like a slider of go-to-market models. On the far left is sales-led go-to-market where you have salespeople calling on customers, like traditional up the middle, like enterprise selling. Like that's on the far left. So picture the slider, then you slide a little bit to the right. And in the middle, you have marketing-led selling where you probably do online demand gen, you drive prospects to online trials and evaluations. And then you have an inside sales team that sort of picks it up and takes it the rest of the way to close the deal and then the customer. That's like marketing-led selling. You sort of think about like a Marketo or a lot of classic enterprise, modern enterprise selling looks like that. And then on the far right of the go-to-market spectrum, you have product-led selling, which is the product sells itself. You don't really have any salespeople. Think about like sort of a Twilio or an Atlassian. And I found it super confusing for how do you how do you figure out where you should be on that? You know, it's like, oh, if you have big ticket size, you have to be this. If you have small, this. If you're high velocity, that. And it was like, it sort of felt like there was this sort of like this random set of things that were driving this choice. And I found it super confusing and hard to try multiple things at once. So for me, like if you unpack this, the thing I learned is that, you know, on the far left, you've got sales led, which is you hire a bunch of salespeople and sell the traditional way. In the middle, you have marketing led selling where marketing does the front end with automation and the back end of sales and you have product led selling. So the thing that realized is you can actually distill it down to one question, which is how does your customer decide to buy? It's not the physics of how they buy, but how does a customer make the cognitive decision to buy your product? That is the biggest driver of your go-to-market model. And I'll, and I'll sort of talk through that. So if your buyer and decider are the same person and you can reach them with digital marketing and your product is relatively well understood, you can do product-led selling like in Atlassian or Twilio. Like the buyer and decider are the same person. So the cognitive decision process is you have to be able to reach them. They have to know what your product is and they just decide. If you're doing marketing-led selling, it's usually like the buyer and decider are like two people. Like it's like the VP of marketing and the CEO. Like if you look at Marketo, the mar- marketing automation system, like the VP of marketing would be like, I want to buy Marketo and CEO would say, okay, right? It was sort of like, that was sort of the, the sales process. And if you looked at Mobile Iron, for instance, we actually did sales led. And it was because effectively the cognitive process for our customers to make a decision was a committee decision. We were selling large deals in enterprises, and it involved the mobile team, the IT team, the security team, and often the CIO. So the thing I learned was if you watch, as you're winning your 10 or 15 or 20 first deals, you're so focused sometimes on just trying to close the deals. My advice would be to also pay attention and watch how your customers actually made the decision to buy, how they made the decision to buy. Like watch the cognitive process. Like if you think about how you as a person make a decision to buy, you you come up with a need, you do a little bit of research, you do some learning, and then you make a decision, right? Companies go through that same process. So pay attention to how your customers decide to buy. And that will likely steer you to where on this go-to-market spectrum 
you want to learn. It also could clue you into whether you have a good business or a bad business. And I'll give you an example of that, which is that let's say you have a product that has a relatively low ticket size, like you know, 10 or 20,000 ARR, but it's a committee decision inside the customer, right? On one hand, you've got a very, your, the cognitive process for your customers decide to buy would lead you towards a sales-led go-to-market model. Yet, wait a minute, your ticket size is really small, so you can't afford a heavyweight sales motion. Like, that's a problem. Like, they act, that actually may mean you don't have a good business. So being able to understand how your customers decide to buy, matching your go-to-market model to that, and then making sure that works for your economics is part two. I guess the next logical question is, how do you do that? Is it with questions? How, how would you guys do it at Mobile Iron? When you're winning your first 10, 15, 20 customers, you're just like out in the forest trying to chop down trees, right? You're just trying to go win deals. But for us, one of the things we realized in sort of watching how our customers decided to buy, we realized that there were multiple people involved. You know, like I said, it ended up being sort of a committee decision inside customers. So we realized that we just had to have sort of a heavier weight up the middle enterprise sales model. And the good news is that the the deal sizes and the the lifetime value of our customers was big enough that we could afford to do that. So that's how we decided to do it at Mobile Iron. The key thing for other entrepreneurs going through this is just remember as you're winning your first 10, 15, 20 customers, just pay attention to how your customers are deciding to buy. And that will start to give you a clue as to where on this go-to-market spectrum from sales-led to marketing-led to product-led selling that you, you need to be. And the reason why this matters is that Early stage startups can really only pick one go-to-market model. Any startup that says, hey, we're simultaneously running a product-led selling motion and up the middle sales-led motion where we hire lots of salespeople, they're just not going to make it. I'm sure there are exceptions to that, but in general, in order to unlock growth, you really, in the very beginning, you have to find that one go-to-market model that works for you and just repeat that. Trying to execute on multiple go-to-market models at the same time, you can experiment with different things, but at some point, you're going to have to pick one and focus on that, get from zero to 10 million. Yeah, so pick a lane, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, pick a model, actually. And then it's really about the playbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how do you... Well, this was the uh, this was the part that's not just a PowerPoint, right? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of a funny story. Rewinding back to, to the fall of 2009, Mobile Iron just won our first 15, 20 customers. We had found product market fit. We had sort of two sales reps that helped find that, and we started to find early repeatability, and it was time to bring in VP of sales and a guy named John Donnelly joined. And he's like, all right, we need to really nail down our go-to-market playbook. And as a first-time CEO and product-led kind of entrepreneur, in my head, I translated what John said is, oh, we need a better PowerPoint pitch and good sales tactics. And he just looked at me like I was a complete idiot. And rightfully so. <laughs> so, so the go-to-market playbook becomes the repeatable recipe for how you find and win and make customers successful over and over and over and over and over again. And it really becomes sort of the operating system for your go-to-market. And a PowerPoint pitch is one bullet point in your go-to-market playbook. It's like one step in your go-to-market playbook. But your go-to-market playbook is way bigger than that. It's how do you find customers? How do you get them to engage with you? How do you get them to learn? You know, How do you get into an evaluation? How do you get them to make a decision? How do you get them to buy? How do you then enable them, make them successful? It's that end-to-end -end playbook from the first time you go find a customer to all the way through winning them and making them successful. 
So you can see how that's a lot more than a PowerPoint print. Yeah, and so the other side of that actually is a problem too, which is I was working with a company in Seattle where the VP of sales was like, all right, let me show you my go-to-market playbook. And he gave me like a 50-page Word document. It was like a brain dump of everything you'd ever learn. And that's not a go-to-market playbook either. The go-to-market playbook really fits on sort of one, maybe two slides. And let me sort of paint what it looks like, which is that across the top, you have the customer journey. It's four, five, six, seven steps, which is sort of from the first time you can find a customer all the way through winning them, making them successful. This is not like the Salesforce forecasting stages. This is not a Salesforce forecast exercise. This is really about the physics of the customer journey through their eyes. And then underneath each one of those stages, you have what does your company do or say at each one of those stages? Like, here's the three messages we deliver. Here's the tools we have. Here's who's in that meeting, like whatever it is. What do people do and say at each stage? And then in the very bottom of the playbook under each stage, you have what are the what are the tools that the rest of the company needs to deliver to be able to make that work? It could be key product features. It could be a PowerPoint presentation. It could be an online evaluation guide. It could be some marketing materials, like whatever it is. It takes this instinctive motion of sort of salespeople and marketing people running around trying to win customers and stills it down to what's the repeatable playbook that allows you to do it over and over and over and over again. And it's a lot harder to do than you think because you know, even just getting the customer journey down, like what's across the top of your playbook is harder than it sounds. Like I was working with one company in San Francisco where I had the execs go up to the board and say, what are the steps of your customer journey? And each of the execs had a view that was about two thirds the same and one third different. But whereas that seems like that's pretty close, when you have two thirds aligned times two thirds aligned times two thirds aligned times two thirds aligned, all of a sudden you're only like 20% aligned. And imagine what it's like for the rest of the company to try and line up behind to go to market when your execs don't even have the same view of what are the five or six steps of the customer journey. Like right. if you don't even have that nailed down, how do you build a repeatable recipe to go find and win customers? So building this repeatable go-to-market playbook sounds easier than it is. It actually requires a lot of sacrifice, a lot of distillation, a lot of iteration. But once you get it nailed down, it's magic. And one of the ways you know you're onto the right thing is if you just watch the behavior of your sales and marketing team, they look at the playbook and they're like, this is what we do. If you hire somebody new, they, they grab the playbook and like, this is how I go win deals or this is how I drive leads. And it doesn't mean it's monolithic because it evolves over time. There's experimentation. There's things you add. There's things you change. But being able to distill down sort of this intuitive go-to-market motion that founders use to go in your first 20 deals to be able to have a repeatable go-to-market motion that sales reps and marketing people can go do is sort of this big leap from product market fit to go-to-market fit. And uh, it's a lot harder to do than it sounds, but it's magic when you get it. I could still recreate our you know, original go-to-market playbook for mobile iron from memory. Like mm -hmm. that's how much of part of who we were it became. We have some examples on our website for the book series, survivaltothrival.com, some playbooks from mobile iron, some other companies. And those are really the three parts of go-to-market fit. Get your mind urgency, nail down where on the go-to-market spectrum you are for your model and build a repeatable go-to-market playbook. Interesting. So it's like the strategies around the customer journey. Yeah. One of the mistakes is often when people think about building a go-to-market playbook, they sort of default to like the seven forecasting stages that show up in salesforce.com. 
That's not the same thing. Like this is not a forecasting exercise. Like it's not who's in discovery, who's in negotiation, who's in contracting. Like that's like how your sales team spending their time. That's not looking at it through the eyes of the customer and the physics of the customer journey. Just getting physics of your customer journey nailed down and then what are the repeatable steps you do at each stage. That's how you build a repeatable go-to-market to unlock growth. And it works for sales-led go-to-market. It works for marketing-led go-to-market. And it works for product-led go-to-market. Because the whole point about unlocking growth is how do you go from sort of this founder-led selling model to you know repeatable, predictable sales that can scale without the founder? And uh, one of the unfortunate things that uh, I often see is that founders can't find go-to-market fit. Because founders can get meetings and say things and do things that normal salespeople and marketing people can't do. Like the success of a founder in winning companies is not necessarily repeatable when it comes to winning other customers. So figuring out how to make that transition from founder-led selling and product market fit to go-to-market fit and repeatable sales is the key to unlocking growth. So if it's not up to the founder, is it up to the founder to find it? Or who does that? And, and when? When should you start to look for go-to-market fit? Like when's the right time? Great question. So let's talk about the when and then we can talk about the who. So the when is sort of towards the tail end of product market fit. You know, if you think about product market fit, it's how do you get to 10 or 15 paying customers? And you sort of prove that somebody gives it, you're, you found a pain and you have a product that somebody's willing to give you money for, right? And so as sort of towards the tail end of product market fit, Start paying attention to the patterns. Like, why do customers, why do you win customers? Why do you lose customers? Why do some deals go fast? Why do some deals go slow? Why do some deals get big? Why do some deals get small? Like, start to pay attention to the patterns of what allowed you to win those first 10 or 15 deals. Hmm. And the who does it is actually an important question. I think the founder can certainly sponsor and say, look, we need to find go-to-market fit. But in terms of the who's involved to actually drive go-to-market fit, usually what happens is you need to hire sort of one or two kind of Davy Crockett sales reps or marketing reps or growth people to go find it. Like you need to be, bring in sort of normal sales, marketing or growth folks to go talk to customers and try and find that repeatable recipe to find and win customers that works for them. And the they're going to be the reality test for finding go-to-market fit. Like we had two Davy Crockett sales reps in the early days of Mobile Iron, and they're the ones that found sort of the urge and adjacency. They're the ones that sort of figured out who cared, who was the ICP, and what was the motion for step one, step two, step three to be able to find and win them. And then... Interestingly for us, it started off with a whiteboard in a guy named Mike Lee's queue. Mike was one of our Davy Crockett sort of type sales reps. And I use the metaphor Davy Crockett. It's like, imagine sort of the explorer trying to find the path through the woods, right? And he had a whiteboard in the back of his cube that basically he wrote down stuff that what caused customers to move forward in their buying journey and what caused customers to stall. And he just did it for himself. Because he just wanted to figure it out. And then suddenly we started to pay attention to what was on Mike's whiteboard. Like, oh, wait a minute, that caused customers to move forward and spend more time with us? And what do you mean that thing didn't work? And that was sort of that beginning of finding the patterns of go-to-market fit. Mm -hmm. 
And you know, then eventually it was a combination of sales, marketing, and product, because you have to bring all three of those folks together to say, all right, let's really nail down our customer journey. What are we going to say and do? How's the product evolves? How's sales and marketing evolve? What are the tools we need to do? Like, interestingly, your go-to-market playbook can sometimes force changes in your product. Yeah, I think the sort of realities of being a business and dealing with customers force you to face that go-to-market fit. Yeah, I'll give you sort of a funny example. Like, there's this, one of the things that's important to build into your go-to-market playbook is what I call the wow, which is, you know, and I think the entrepreneurs are listening will sort of recognize this. You know, whenever you're out talking to a prospect and you're sort of talking about what your company does and what your product does, and there's something you say or show where suddenly you see the customer's body language change. Like they lean in and they're like, tell me more, right? That's a clue that you're on to a wow, like something that gets their attention, something that wants to get them to spend more time with you. And one of the mistakes I would make is a CEO and being sort of a product guy. Like I always thought I would know what the wow is in the customer's mind. The reality is I don't get to decide the wows. The customers do. And turned out we had a wow that, you know, I always, you always sort of think the wow is going to be whatever you're most proud of on your product and whatever you work the hardest on. But we had a wow that was a feature we built for customers, which is this thing called selective wipe. It was the ability to wipe off your work stuff off your phone, but leave your personal pictures and music alone. And it was an important feature, but it wasn't that hard to build. But when we showed it to customers, they were like, wow, right? They wanted to spend more time with us. They wanted to go get their peer involved. They wanted to go get their boss to take a look at it. So being able to get your playbooks, you have the steps and what do people say and do. The other piece of it is look for the wows, because sometimes those influence how you build your product. So for us, actually, that wow around selective wipe was kind of buried way down in the UI. And so we ended up changing the product UI to sort of pull it up to the top. And not because it was sort of a you know, widely used feature in operationalized products, but because it was an important part of prospects and demo customers being able to see something they were interested in that they wanted to spend more time with. So uh, you know, that's a great example of how sort of the go-to-market playbook around moving customers to the next stage influenced you know, a direct change in the product. And I think that kind of feedback loop is healthy. And if we had just evaluated it based on like product usage and production, we never would have done it. I think for founders that are making the transition from building a product to building a business, you know, recognizing that there are changes you make to the product to help go to market work better is just as important as building a feature that a customer is going to use. Because if your go to market doesn't work, you're not going to have that many customers. So you've mentioned you need this Davy Crockett type sales role to help find the go to market fit. I'm wondering as your as you grow in your go-to-market journey and finding your go-to-market fit, do the sales roles stay the same or do they also change? Ah, great question. So, you know, if you look at the very beginning, it's like founder-led someone. And then from there, typically what happens is, you know, you bring in one or two Davy Crockett type sales reps or somebody that kind of does that same thing on the marketing and demand gen side or somebody that does that on building the product-led sales process whatever it is, but you you bring in sort of those find the path through the wood types. And then once you start to get a sense for what that path 
through the woods look like and you start to get a sense for what the go-to-market playbook looks like, that's when you want to bring in a VP of sales. One of the mistakes that sometimes happens is that, particularly for product-led founders, is when it's time to go start figuring out sales and growth, the message is go hire VP of sales. And personally, I actually think that's the wrong thing to do. First of all, because no great A VP of sales is going to be the first salesperson in the building. They're just not. And the second thing is really good VPs of sales are more like Braveheart or Joan of Arc. They're like battlefield commanders that can polish up the battle plan and hire the troops and run down the path and go take on the enemy. Really good VPs of sales are typically not the Davy Crockett's that sort of find the path through the woods. So, you know, the very first phase is founder-led selling. The second phase is this sort of Davy Crockett phase. And then once you start to get a sense for the repeatable playbook, then it's time to bring in sort of a Joan of Arc or Braveheart type sales and marketing leader that can really polish that repeatable process and hire a team to go execute on. Okay. Next, like what happens to startups that that aren't able to find their go-to-market fit? It's pain and agony. It really is. Part of, you know, what, like I said at the beginning, sort of this concept of frustration is often the mother of inspiration. You know, I think in Silicon Valley, we've done a really nice job of talking about product market fit and being product centric. But this idea of building go-to-markets on your back of your product and unlocking growth is this missing link. And not doing it creates a lot of pain. And here's what it feels like is, hey, startup succeed in winning your 10 or first 10 or 15, 20 customers, you're able to claim product market fit, which is a huge milestone, huge, huge, huge milestone. And then, hey, it's time to go sell. And you raise some capital, you go hire a bunch of sales marketing people, your burn rate goes up, and you go from having 20 customers to 22, to 24, to 26. And your burn rate's accelerating, growth hasn't unlocked. Everybody's kind of looking at each other going, what the heck? And stress goes up, fear goes up, it's miserable. Because just because you found product market fit, going to hire a bunch of salespeople and investing money in marketing isn't going to unlock growth. And unfortunately, sort of the difference between success and failure there is being able to build that repeatable, predictable go-to-market, which is go-to-market fit. So say I am a entrepreneur and my business, uh, we're doing great. We found our go-to-market fit. But you know, markets change, things change, people have to evolve. So how do you evolve your go-to-market fit when I think the inclination is usually to rely on what made you successful in the first place? Oh man, that is one of the hardest things. And we live this in Mobile Iron. So you know, we finding go-to-market fit is hard. And when you get it right, you unlock growth, you find that repeatable recipe, you just turn the crank and you build that repeatable process. You find a bunch of customers, you win a bunch of customers, you hire a bunch of sales, you invest in marketing. It's awesome. You feel the momentum. But then down the road, something changes. And it could be something that was inflicted on you by the market, or it could be you as a company are saying, look, it's time for us to evolve from sort of act one to sort of a broader act two. Maybe go tackle an adjacent market or add on some additional products or go from selling a single product to a platform. Like there's all sorts of things that change as a company goes from act one to their act two. And One of the hardest things about going from act one to act two is often it triggers pretty significant changes in your go-to-market playbook. And what's interesting about a company, when they get their go-to-market playbook right, 
it almost becomes like muscle memory for the company, right? You just repeat, 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 repeat. And it almost becomes like reflex and muscle memory. And as we all know from just normal daily life, like changing muscle memory is hard. So in, and the same thing happens to companies when they need to change or evolve their product and go to market, that all the sort of processes and behaviors and muscles that get built around go-to-market fit A, if their world changes either for external reasons or internal reasons, it's really hard to change. And I'll give you sort of an example from Mobile Iron. So we found go-to-market fit in 2010 and growth took off. We started winning hundreds and hundreds of new enterprise customers a quarter. We were selling device security and doing a great job of it. Well, we believe that Act 2 for Mobile Iron was extending from selling mobile device security to selling mobile application security, mobile content security, and mobile identity. Really sort of as smartphones, the usage of smartphones became more sophisticated beyond email, and people were using apps and doing real work. Like We needed to be able to solve the security problem for that. Well, so from a product strategy, we executed really well on that. We built the product. We had a bunch of design customers. A lot of our larger customers wanted to be early customers. So we built it for them. And that worked really well. Well, the challenge was that it was a much broader sale that involved more people. And effectively, it changed our go-to-market motion. And so it changed our go-to-market playbook. And we had gotten so good at sort of go-to-market playbook one that I drastically underestimated sort of the amount of work it would take to evolve from go-to-market playbook one to go-to-market playbook two, or even just adding a go-to-market playbook because we're going after a different market. And the hard lesson there was recognizing that either adding a new go-to-market playbook because you're going to go tackle, like you're going to go from large enterprise to add in mid-market enterprise, or you're going to change a go-to-market playbook because you're going from selling a single product to a platform is hard. And it takes real work and real energy to sort of change that muscle memory. And I think this is actually one of the things that doesn't get talked about. If you look at like Innovator's Dilemma, this works for startups and big companies. Like a lot of times they build their go-to-market playbook and then they build new products and then they say, all right, let's go shove this new product through our existing go-to-market playbook and it doesn't work, right? That happens all the time. So recognizing that your go-to-market playbook and go-to-market motion may be specific to this particular product and this particular ideal customer profile is really important. As you add ICPs or change your product, it may change your go-to-market motion. And when you do that, in some ways, you have to go back to drawing board on what's our new go-to-market playbook, how does it change, and then actually get it rolled out and get the company's muscle memory to change to adopt the new playbook. So sort of a painful story for me was in 2012, we went from sort of act one to act two. Like I said, we did a good job on the product, built the product, rolled out the product. We rolled out the new story and go to market playbook to the team. And 90 days later, everybody went back to what they were doing before. And I was terrified. It was all of a sudden like, oh my God, like we invested all this money in product. We got early customers buying and we can't seem to get the go to market motion to adopt it. And it was terrifying. So we ended up doing effectively what was shock therapy. In Q2 of 2012, after our Q1 rollout and reverting back to what we were doing before, I'm stressed out. I'm worried about like our evolution to Act 2 and made somewhat of a controversial decision, which is I basically made every single sales rep and SE present the new story to me one-on-one if I was a customer. And I agreed with them. 
it took like three weeks of my time. We had like 70 people in the field at the time. And you could argue that maybe that wasn't a good use of my time as CEO. Or on the other hand, you could argue that getting the go-to-market to change from act one to act two was actually the most important thing in the business at the time, in which case it was a good use of my time. And by creating that kind of shock value or shock therapy around changing go-to-market motion, it sent the signal that this was really important. They were definitely serious about it. It gave me a chance to see what was working and what not, was not working. It also gave me a chance to see who was taking it seriously and who was not. And as a result, a mixture of attention and fear and seriousness Roll the clock forward another quarter and 30, 40% of our deals had the new products and capabilities attached to it. So it worked. But I think for me and I think other entrepreneurs don't underestimate the difficulty of changing your go-to-market playbook. It's magic when you get it right the first time. But ironically, the very magic of getting it right the first time and getting it rolled out, it's hard to change. So just don't underestimate the amount of energy it takes to change your go-to-market playbook. So take me back to when you were at Mobile Iron doing this for the first time. This wasn't called go-to-market fit at the time, right? So what exactly were you trying to do? Because you quite literally wrote the book on this. What was your goal? And then how did it become go-to-market fit? Like, what were you calling it at the time? Uh, We didn't have a name for it. We were just trying to drive repeatable selling to where we could hire new sales and marketing people and it would work. And that was actually why we coined the term Tehi and I coined the term go-to-market fit. You know how when something doesn't have a name, it doesn't have an identity, and therefore it's hard to talk about? Like it's just sort of the way human brains work. Unless you can like have words for it, you can't conceptualize it. So what I realized was like there was this missing link that was just go figure out that sales and growth stuff. And as a first-time CEO, I found that incredibly frustrating. And that was what was the inspiration to come up with a way to talk about this missing link and what we ended up calling go-to-market fit. And what was cool about it is as we started to look at this, and you know, I went to go talk to other entrepreneurs like Aaron Levy at Bop or Phil Fernandez at Marketo. Like we all had sort of similar frustrations in building these repeatable go-to-markets. We all had similar frustrations in there wasn't a common way to talk about it. And we all had similar experiences about once we got it right, like what were the key components? You know, the words were different, the terms were different, some of the business choices were different, but sort of at a very high level, sort of this combination of urgency, the right sales model, and a repeatable playbook is remarkably common across all the B2B software companies that actually figure out how to unlock growth. But the weird part is it didn't have a name. It was just this, go figure out sales and marketing. And that was frustrating. So... Yeah, we basically hijacked the term product market fit and said, let's call it something similar to that, but it has to do with go-to-market fit. So that's where the name came up. Got it. Yeah, it's it's kind of a big problem of find your product market fit and then and then go make it scale. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, just go make it scale is one of my pet peeves. Like that's the same thing on the people side and go-to-market thing. Like people are told, go scale it. And like as a first-time entrepreneur, you're like, I have no idea what that means. And like your investors will tell you, well, you'll know it when you see it. I'm like, well, that's not helpful. Yeah, what does that mean? Easier said than done, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so this this idea of building predictable, repeatable selling is what go-to-market fit is, I think. What it takes to do that and the outcomes you find predictable, repeatable sales. And uh, it's how you scale. And that's actually useful because it gives it gave me sort of a framework to know what to do and how to work with my team and how to execute on it rather than just sort of this unhelpful one-liner of go scale. Awesome. Well, congratulations on 
figuring it out and writing the book. Last question here for me. It's hard to do a podcast these days without mentioning coronavirus, and they've obviously affected businesses across the board. Do you have any advice on figuring out your go-to-market fit in this new reality where everything is virtual, everyone's remote, working from home? Yeah, so interesting you bring this up. A key part of go-to-market fit is building that repeatable playbook and getting implicit muscle motion of finding winning customers and making it explicit. In coronavirus, where sales teams are now remote, you're onboarding new salespeople, new marketing people, and you have to make them productive. It becomes an even higher imperative to have what's your urgent pain, what's your sales model look like, and even more importantly, what's your repeatable go-to-market playbook look like so that you can, everybody knows what to do. It takes sort of this implicit tribal knowledge and makes it explicit. So you can onboard people, you can add people, you can make decisions, you can systematize. Whereas before, a lot of times, like people were just in bullpens and kind of figured it out by watching everybody. In a remote coronavirus world, for onboarding and building repeatable go-to-markets, if you don't have it, if you don't have an explicit playbook, it's going to be really hard. So that's sort of the biggest observation in terms of the transition to a remote selling coronavirus world. The second thing is a little bit more of a minor point, but I'll make it anyway, which is that if you have an explicit go-to-market playbook for how you find and win customers over and over again, you can actually go look at that go-to-market playbook and say, okay, now that our sales teams and marketing teams are remote, what changes? And you can make an explicit decision, say, okay, that part changes, how are we going to address it? That part changes, how are we going to address it? That part changes, how are we going to address it? And then you get to roll it out to your team, as opposed to just leaving it up to your team to say, okay, I know you guys were doing this before, go figure out how to do it remotely. So there is a fundamental requirement to have a repeatable go-to-market playbook in a remote selling world just to be able to enable your team. But I think the secondary side effect of it is it gives you sort of a baseline that you've already been executing against to say, all right. We're going to change A, B, and C, and let's go change A, B, and C. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bob. We're going to end this here. Before we go, what is the best way for listeners to reach you? Feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn or Twitter, which is at Bob Tinker. And uh, thanks for having me on. I think uh, in 2008 and before that, in 2002, I was in the shoes of the entrepreneurs in your audience. And uh, it's a blast to go build companies. It's some really happy times and some really dark and depressing times. And I think my final comment for the folks in the audience is just know that you're not alone. Sometimes it'll feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. We're all going through this together. So uh, thanks for having me on, Oli. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Bob. I definitely learned a lot. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Again, it was a great learning experience. I am building this sort of knowledge base of how to grow startups. And, and this was definitely a, an essential episode for the listeners. So, so thanks again. Thank you.